0: You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I am here with Jennifer McCaskill. Hi, Jen. Hey, Christina. Thanks for doing this today. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. I, I feel like I kind of roped you into it. It's really no
1: no big whoop. I love it. I love to see you.
0: Awesome. And like most lawyers, you just love to talk, especially about yourself, right? <laughs>
1: Not really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we're just going to go right into it. We're going to talk about your career and your trajectory as an entrepreneur. So where did you go to college and what did you think you were gonna be when you grow up? So I went to Gettysburg College
1: in Pennsylvania and I chose that college because they made me a really good financial deal. I got an academic scholarship. I think we paid like $2,000 a year for me to go to college. Wow. Which was huge, because I was a single mother. I think she was making $25,000 a year when I went to college in 1988. So money was a really big issue. For me, my mother your was mom,
0: okay, your mom was a single mother. I oh. thought I thought you were saying you were, I was like, no. well, I
1: missed something. No, I was raised by a single mother. And so she was making $25,000 a year when I was applying for colleges. And to my mother's credit, she was like, you know, just get in wherever you want to go. I'll figure it out. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then, um, I got a scholarship offer. So I went to Gettysburg.
0: And what did you major in?
1: So I'm a super nerd. I was a German major.
0: Really? Yes. Are you fluent in German? No.
1: At one point, I could speak German, but it's been 30 years since I was in college, so.
0: Well, maybe you should go to Germany and just stay there for a month.
1: <laughs> well, that was my plan. I was going to get my PhD in German. And Why I was, German? I just—it's it, what I loved. It was either German or math. <laughs> okay. I, I know. I know. Um, it was either German or math. I didn't like the math professor, so I was like, "All right, screw that. It's German." So I was a German major. What did
0: you think you were going to do with
1: it? I was going to get my PhD and I was going to be a college professor. In German? Yep.
0: Wow. I know. I well, you sure did go off the track a little bit. <laughs> I went way off the track.
1: I was, my plan was that I was going to graduate from college and I was going to go study at the Goethe Institute in Germany and then I was going to get my PhD and instead I moved to D.C. and I was a bartender.
0: How on earth did that happen?
1: One of my best friends from college called me over the summer after graduation and was like, yeah, I got into Georgetown grad school. I'm moving to D.C. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm coming.
0: <laughs> wow. It didn't take much. She didn't have to twist her Didn't take much.
1: No. So we moved to D.C. And then I walked in and out of every restaurant in Georgetown and got a bartending job.
0: Did you have any experience bartending?
1: I had, I did. Because in college, on school breaks in the summer, and over Christmas break I would work at this restaurant and I would I was a waitress, I was a cocktail waitress and I was also a bartender.
0: I always wanted to be a bartender. Everybody
1: wants to be a bartender.
0: Sometimes I think I should just go do it now. <laughs>
1: well, that's my that's my plan B if this whole lawyer thing doesn't work <laughs> out, I figure I could always go back to bartending. You could. I you could. could.
0: Did you make good tips? I did. Yeah, I did. It went on
1: like a Monday. I would just pull it in.
0: So you went to D.C., but what was in the back of your mind about this whole German thing?
1: Oh, the German thing went right out the window.
0: Uh, So so obviously you were very passionate about it.
1: Well, I was just kind of like, I don't know. It just I mean, looking back, it all kind of worked out. But, you know, in your 20s, remember in your 20s, you were like finding your way,
0: what you want, what you don't want. What do I want to be when I grow up? So you went to DC, you're bartending, probably partying if I know you. Oh,
1: quite the party. So you feel like you sewed your oats, you did all that. Oh girl, I sewed oats for like ten people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we wanna keep this relatively clean, so we'll kinda just we'll we'll just glaze past that. So what did when did you start to get like a little more serious? Like I guess maybe I need to sort of figure out. Like bartending's probably not gonna work forever. Yeah, so bartending bartending
1: full time was brutal. Um, and then I, you know, it was interesting because people would come in and they would automatically treat me like I was uneducated and stupid because Mm. I was a bartender and it used to really piss me off. Um, and then when I was 25, I got a job, a day job working as a receptionist for a trade association, which is a lobbying firm, um, in DC for the biotechnology industry. So I was the receptionist. I used to work, you know, I used to bartend at night, get home at like two o'clock in the morning, and then I would go and be a receptionist at 730 in the morning till 430 in the afternoon. I was with that trade association for several years, um, you know, worked my way up. I used to do state and local government relations for the trade association for the biotech industry. And then I would still bartend a couple of nights a week. Um, and everybody at the trade association had a law degree because they were all lobbyists. And they all used to say to me, you should go to law school. You should go to law school. And I was like, I don't, I don't go to law school. They're all douchebags. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not a douchebag. Like, I'm not going to law school. I don't want to be a lawyer. It turns out you are. <laughs> it turns out I am a douche. Um, and then I was also dating a guy at the time who was in law school at William & Mary. And so I, it was like the universe kept telling me, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I didn't know for what. I started looking into graduate programs. Nothing was speaking to me. And then... When I really sat down and evaluated it, I was like, you know, a law degree is really the most versatile graduate degree you can get, because even if you don't practice, it'll open a door that wasn't open, it'll always get you more money. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to law school. And then I applied to a couple law schools. I was 28 when I went to law school, so I was already working full time. I had a mortgage because I had bought a condo in DC. And so the only option I had was to go at night. So, you know, when I, I was insecure, I was like, am I smart enough? Can I do this?
0: Um, I feel like a lot of people go through that unless they just have a really enormous ego. Yeah, I was really like,
1: I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And I was convinced I wasn't going to get in. And then I got in and I was like, oh, shit, now I got to go. Well,
0: were you a big studier? Yes, Okay. Yes. Cause I wasn't, I and was, I,
1: I was a huge nerd.
0: I was a little worried that, you know, if you go to, if I go to law school, I mean, you have to study, like you're not going to just, you know, breeze through that. And I was a little worried that I might not be able to hack it, but it all worked out. I'm curious though. Why, when you were bartending, why did you go get a receptionist job? Cause I just wanted to get a day job.
1: And I needed benefits and better benefits, okay. and I was ready. I was 25. I was kind of ready to be a big girl and like be in the big girl working world. And in D.C., everything in the district is who you know. That's how you get a job, no matter what industry you're in, bartending versus working on the Hill versus working in a trade association. Any job you get in D.C., it's based on who you know. So I had like a friend of a friend who worked for this trade association, and that's how I got that
0: job. So then you went to law school and you were still working there. I was still
1: working there through my first year of law school. So I was working full time. I was going to law school at night, which is four nights. It was four nights a week, Monday through Thursday from 630 to 930.
0: What was that like? It was brutal. Yeah, because I did that too. It was brutal. And I was commuting an hour and it was rough, especially the first year. It was really rough. I
1: mean, when you have to read, like you know, the, the immense amount of reading, as you remember... And then I would so what I would do is I would spend like 10 hours on Sundays in the library trying to do all my reading for the entire week. And then I would work and go to school and come home and work and go to school and come home. And then I had no time to do laundry or grocery shopping or anything like that. It was that that's what was hard was managing my the rest of my life. Yeah. Now I still found time to drink. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you still find time even now to drink, right? For anybody that knows you.
1: Quarterly. I drink Not quarterly. Not as much as you'd like. Not nearly but... as much.
0: So did you think you were going to be a lobbyist?
1: No. I kn- when I went to law school, I knew I wanted to be a divorce lawyer.
0: Really? Yep. Now why?
1: Well, pro- you know, obviously because my parents are divorced. My, my parents um, got divorced when I think I was five months old. Um, and it was rough. It was really difficult, and so well um, you wouldn't you don't remember the divorce unless you no, have a super duper memory. No, I don't remember the divorce. It was just growing up in a in a house with one income, and I didn't yeah. have a relationship with my father, and and money was always tight, and it was. It was brutal. I had to, you know, I was a latchkey kid at age eight, you know, back in the seventies, there weren't daycares Yeah, and there wasn't aftercare at school. It was yeah. like, okay, come home.
0: Latchkey kids. Latchkey kid. I don't kid. think that's even a thing
1: now. Latchkey kid. I was eight. Yeah. Third grade.
0: So that's interesting because some people might think I want to stay far away from that. I don't know. It was just what I was drawn to.
1: And I think it's really because I know now that I've been practicing for 18 years that, my life as a child of divorce would have been a lot better if my mother had me as a divorce lawyer or had somebody like me so really the the kids is really my end game that continues to motivate me
0: 18 years later so now do you because people ask me this all the time but do you feel like you have a special affinity towards women getting divorced or
1: Okay. Nope. As long as I'm not representing the douche, you know, I don't really care what gender it is. I represent just as many men as I do women. Because um, really my end game is the kids, you know, yeah. and making it, making sure that I've done everything that I can to make this next chapter as best as possible as I can for the kids. Yeah, that's really, that's my motivation.
0: Well, I think that's important because I don't think a lot of attorneys are actually doing that. They're just sort of parroting whatever the whatever their the client, client says. wants. Yeah. But let's go back to law school. Did you actually like law school? Because some people hate it. Some people love it.
1: It was fine. I mean, it was it was a means to an end. I mean, it was brutal. I grew a lot emotionally. Um, I learned a lot. I think it really helped my confidence level and seeing how well I could do and that I could work and go to school. I mean, it sucked, but it was wor- well worth it.
0: And from day one, you knew you wanted to do divorce. Yes. So, what did you do to learn about? Did you get a job somewhere else? Did you know? Did you do like? Did they have a clinic?
1: No. Well, I couldn't do any of the clinics because I worked full time. So there, I took one family law class in law school. And I then, loved it. it. Wasn't my highest grade, by the way. Um, and then when I got out of law school, I only applied for family law positions
0: in DC. DC. Mm-hmm. So where did you end up working?
1: So I worked at a firm in Bethesda, which is right outside of the district, um, for two years doing only divorce and family law for this wonderful attorney, Linda Rabdon. She was, she's fantastic. And then after that, I left them and went to another family law firm in the district where I worked there. And then the partner that I was working for, who was the primary rainmaker, dropped out of a heart attack about seven months after I started. And then it was me and the other associate, and we just kind of kept it going. It was a big it was a medium-sized firm. there's probably 30 lawyers. Um, but the family law department was she and I, and she was licensed in Maryland and DC and I was licensed in Virginia and DC. And we just kind of kept it going for another year, and then the firm was closing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had a couple job offers on the table and at that point I had been out for almost 5 years practicing and we I'd had my first child during that
0: time. Yeah, I was going to ask you when did you obviously broke up with the boyfriend cuz that wasn't <laughs> your husband, right? <laughs> But it's not a show about that. Maybe another day. But you met, obviously you met your husband when you got married. I Were met you my in husband. I
1: met my husband my third year of law school because law school when you go at night is four years. So yeah. I met him the second semester of my third year. Actually, is it next week? In the last week of February, twenty years ago.
0: Wow. You don't know your anniversary? Uh, No, it was our anniversary of like when we met. I think it was like February,
1: our first date was like February 23rd or something-ish.
0: And what does he do?
1: He's an accountant.
0: Okay. That must come in handy. Well, he's
1: not a public accountant. Like I have to pay somebody to do our taxes. He just works um, in the finance department of a corporation. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you got married and then you started popping out babies. Right. So we got married. We got engaged after law school
1: because we moved in together after six months. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Everybody says, when you know, you know, and that was totally true because I had no desire to get married. I really had no desire to get married.
0: You were turned off to marriage because of your mom's situation? Yeah,
1: I think because I I didn't want to get married because I never wanted to get divorced.
0: Oh, that's sad.
1: So, but well, I was totally fine with it. And then I met my husband and then, bless you. Thank you. And then all my plans, my single woman plans went out the window. And, uh, we then I told him we moved in after six months and I was like, listen, we have to live together for an entire year before we get married because like, I have to be as sure as I can be. And he's like, fine. Like whatever, Jennifer. And then we Were got you
0: always <laughs> as crazy as you are now. Oh my God. I'm so much more mellow. You are. Yes.
1: I'm super mellow now.
0: <laughs> I mean that in a loving way, by oh, the no, way. I know
1: I'm not offended.
0: So what did you, what was the most surprising to you about actually practicing family law when you started doing it? Was it what you expected?
1: Yeah, it just felt, so it feels very normal to me. Given my childhood, it feels very normal of like the worries and what they go through and emotionally and so it feels very comfortable for me. So I just like, you know, I just took to it like a fish to water.
0: Well, how how do you prevent yourself from getting sucked into a lot of the dysfunction that we see sometimes? Oh
1: yeah. No, I don't get sucked in at all. I used to, I write, I think the first five years of being a divorce lawyer is so hard because that's when you really learn that you have to separate it and leave it at work or else it's going to eat you alive. Yeah, that's true. And when I first started practicing, um, with Linda Rabden, she said to me, she said, if you make it as a divorce, full-time divorce lawyer for five years, then you're golden. And she was one hundred percent true. It was one hundred percent true for me because at about the five year mark, I was like,
0: "Do I really
1: want to be a divorce lawyer?" And then um, we ended up. Why?
0: Why did you think that? Because
1: it was sucking it out of me. I was like, you know, really worried and up at night and worried about my clients and just worried about the outcomes and worried about their lives. And it was really, I was taking it home too much. And then the firm closed. And then my husband and I talked. Had we've been talking about moving? back to new jersey which is where i'm from
0: and where was he from he's
1: from pennsylvania okay uh, but i wanted to be at the beach so and i wanted to be near my family we had one child by that point and so we picked up moved to new jersey in 2006 in june of 06 and i studied for the new i had to take the bar and start my career all over that had to suck it was brutal because I had, you know, an 18-month-old while I'm trying to study for the bar on, like, you know, an iPod.
0: You couldn't wave in. No. I guess, not Back know.
1: then, no. It was brutal. So I had to sit for the full two-day bar in 06, and then... Well, obviously, you passed. I did, and then I got a job. Um, I was working at a firm in Shrewsbury. I was working for Toby Graybell, who you know. Yes. And then her and Lynn and then about from 2007 to 2009 for about 2000 for about two and a half years and then they laid me off with the recession back in 2009 when everybody was falling apart
0: no eight and nine so when did you start to think when when was it start of sort of on your radar that you would want to be a business owner I really never thought of myself as a business owner. It was
1: more like circumstance. Although I think looking back, it was probably just buried in there. I just wasn't self aware.
0: So you, it never occurred to you that
1: you could hang a shingle one day? It, it had occurred to me of like, you know, because when you're working for other people, you know, you're dealing with their stuff. I had no control over the cases that I was handling. Um, I had no say in it. It was just, you know, go do the work, which is fine. Um, but when things started to go downhill with the firm that I was at, I really started thinking about it. I mean, nobody was hiring. I was brand new to the jurisdiction. I'd only been in New Jersey for two years. Nobody knew me. And so I said to my husband, I'm like, he's like, what are we going to do? I was like, well, I think I'm going to open my own business. And he was like, okay. And so my mother... Took a loan against her 401k. Wow. She took a $50,000 loan against her 401k and gave it to me to start my firm.
0: That's awesome.
1: So I opened my firm in October of 2009. I had eight cases.
0: That you took with you? Yep. Well, it's, yeah. Eight. Like it gets you, yeah, it gets you, well, something, right? Yeah, it was, I mean,
1: just to put it in perspective, now I have, you know, I don't know, 100 cases. You know. so
0: what did you do? Did you have to, you went through the whole thing, like renting an office, yep. furnishing it. Yep. Did you have any staff? Nope. So it was just, you were licking the envelopes. It was me,
1: myself and I for five years.
0: Wow. Five years, yeah. not even a secretary. Nope. Wow. And how many cases would you say you had? Well, I mean, at
1: first I had eight cases, you know, and then in, in 2011, I had our third child. And he came to work with me every day because I couldn't afford daycare. I
0: was going to say, I know what you were doing with your, your extra time. (laughs) I remember
1: sitting at my desk and he was in the stroller and I was like, had like the boob pump on to pump the milk. And I was on the computer, like, you know, multitasking, you know, like working women do. I think I've seen
0: Jeanette Russell do that because she posted it on Facebook.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you just do what you got to do. So we couldn't afford daycare for the first six months and then after six months i think we could afford two days a week that he went into daycare my other two were in aftercare at school and my husband would come over at lunch and like change his diaper feed him and hold him and wow. just give me a break for 45 minutes and then i would go back to work and then uh, you know it was really brutal the first couple of years
0: did you ever think of just folding it in in 2012
1: i think my revenue was eighty-eight thousand gross for the year. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it.
0: And how much were you taking home? Like half that? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think I made like $40,000 in 2012.
0: So how did things turn around?
1: What did you do? Once I started, you know, was in the jurisdiction and started having clients and people started to know me, I went to get certified as a mediator. I started doing early settlement paneling in Monmouth County. Um, Just with time. And getting to know people, it's, you know, cases started to come. And then in 2014, I really was on a an incline with, with my business. And I was kind of like, okay. And then I hired my first employee.
0: Was it a secretary?
1: <laughs> it was, yeah. Well, it's funny. It was Alexis, um, who you just met out there. She um, only worked three days a week from 10 to three because that's all I could afford and I didn't have a desk for her I didn't have a phone and I didn't have a computer so
0: what does she sit
1: on the floor (laughs) no she was so I was like do my filing go to the bank do the office supplies you know all because I was doing everything I was answering the phone doing the calendar writing the letters mailing the letters doing all the lawyering I was doing all my bookkeeping I was doing everything So I hired her and I was like, yeah, I can't afford a desk or a computer yet. So just like make yourself busy. And, and it was, that's how we started. I think it took six months before I could afford the desk and the computer for her. And then she quickly went to full time and then we really started to grow.
0: Well, I, I talk about this subject a lot on this show where, you know, and it applies to me too. I learned the hard way when I left working for someone else and started my own firm Initially, I don't think I realized that you're not just practicing law, you're running a business and which is complete, completely separate and apart from practicing law. So you have to figure out how to make the office productive, how to market. I mean, that's a really big one, marketing and sales. And it sounds like at some point you sort of figured that out. Were you conscious of that? No. So it kind of happened by accident. It
1: really did. I was very much the stereotypical solo lawyer. I was just providing myself with a job. I did not understand that there's a whole business side to running a law firm. I was literally providing myself with a job. I couldn't go on vacation. If I did, I was working the whole time because every hour I wasn't working was every hour that I wasn't making money. And we need both of our incomes. So it sucked. It really sucked.
0: Well, you obviously have (laughs) figured a lot of things out. Because your situation now is you have a beautiful office. It's got more than one room <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a staff. Just tell our listeners what you, what your staff consists of. So now my staff, I have seven employees. That's I awesome. have, um,
1: a full-time admin slash receptionist. I have, Alexis, who does only the operations, like she's really grown with me. She's done like kind of every aspect of the firm as well as I have. So she's really grown with me. So she,
0: like your office manager,
1: she really does the operations. Like okay. she deals with all the accounts receivables, she deals with replenishments of retainers, she deals with um, all the money stuff. She sends out all the bills. She deals with the clients on that. And then as well as we have to order desks, we're hiring new people. She deals with all the onboarding of the new people and of the staff and making sure everything's running. So she really like the nuts and bolts of the factory of the firm Alexis does. And then I have, a, um, Seth Weintraub, who's a full-time associate. And then I have Rebecca Rosenthal, who is, works for three days a week for me as an associate. And then I have, um, this woman named Joan Weatherall, who is a retired divorce lawyer from California who retired a couple years ago, and moved out East cause her sister lives here. And she was like bored out of her mind. She kind of fell in my lap. So she comes in two days a week and just does the, the quadros, the retirement orders.
0: Yeah. That's great. I know there's plenty of offices that would love to have someone just do quadros. Yes. Yeah. Cause
1: I, they were always at the bottom of my list. I hate quadros. And then I have Rosemary Ryan, who works part-time for me, because she really works for Toby Graybell full-time still. And then I have Catherine, who I just hired two weeks ago to do marketing, because now it's 10 years into me owning a business, it's time to do some marketing. That
0: is really (laughs) awesome, because the the people that listen to the show, they're all in different places in their career and in running their business and growing their business. And I think one of the things, at least that I struggled with, and I think you did too, was knowing... When it's time to start hiring people. Because the first thing you always think of is, I can't afford that. Yep. But you learn at some point that you really can't afford not to hire at certain times. Well, it there's there's a lot of fears that you have.
1: I think everybody has, like with the first hire. Um, Of like, oh my god, my business is gonna dry up, and I'm not gonna be able to afford it. Like, it's like these irrational fears, yeah. bullshit stories that we make up in our heads about what's gonna happen. And I really felt that when I went to hire my first associate a couple years ago, I was convinced that my business was gonna dry up and that I wasn't gonna be able to afford it. And you just really have to push through the fear because at the end of the day, the decision is: Do I want to grow my business and make more money, or? Do I want to keep doing what I'm doing and have a ceiling on the growth of my business and and on my income? Yeah. So if you don't push through the fear, you ain't going to grow because there's only so much one person can do. That's
0: right. There's only so many hours in a day and you can't do everything. Do you ever look back and wish you had hired someone earlier? I mean, do you recognize that maybe you could have hired people earlier? I definitely
1: could have hired an associate earlier than I did. Um, I think I hired my first associate in 2017 and I was so scared. And then once I did it, I was like, Oh my God, what was I doing? I could never live without an associate again. And now
0: I, now I have two. So what would you tell people that are listening that are in that situation that don't have the associate and they're kind of thinking that too? Like, how do you know when you're ready? Is there some objective way mm, to look at it? Or? I don't think
1: so. I think it's more, for me, it was more out of necessity. Like, okay, Jennifer, I can continue working nights and weekends, or I can hire somebody to take some of this work off of my desk so I can, you know, see my children and not work 12 hours a day.
0: So would you say in hindsight, hire them before you get to that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that as business owners and especially lawyers do wrong is way too long to hire. Yeah. Because then you're hiring from a place of panic and from a place of kind of desperation of like, oh my god, I have to get a person. I need help. Oh my god, I need help. I need help. I need help, which I think kind of can skew your views of who you hire because you're yes. in such desperate need. Yeah, you just
0: grab the first person that walks in. I I remember I used to say to John, my partner, <laughs> That, you know, if so-and-so, as long as they show up with their pants on, they're getting (laughs) hired, which I've learned over the years that that's not a great way to hire people either because you waste a lot of time and money with someone who's not a good fit, but that's that's another conversation. But I will tell you that when um, John and I were, I think we'd had our firm probably about a year, and Terry Lyons said, hire an associate if you have at least... 20 to 25 hours a week of work that you could give them just hire them because you will have more and you don't want to wait until like what you just said, you're in that desperate situation. And we were terrified. We really were, and it was the money, you know, we were like calculating, well, this is how much they're going to take out of our revenue. And can we really afford that? It's almost seemed like a luxury, but when you do the math, if they're billing, they're making their money times three or four Mm -hmm. so when you actually look at it that way it does make sense and we hired an associate and it was the best thing we ever did you never looked back yeah never looked back it worked out great so
1: it's such a common fear though and it's so normal I mean I we have colleagues where I was just talking to a colleague a couple months ago and I was yelling at her I said hire the associate shut up do it you won't regret it. Push through. And then she did. And she was like, oh, yeah, totally. Best thing ever.
0: Well, the worst thing that will happen is that it won't work out and you'll have to fire them. Correct. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's not Correct. like an undoable decision. No, not at all. But then, but then you go,
1: people go into other issues of like, oh, I don't want to fire them. I don't want to be a bitch. I don't want them to not like me.
0: I'm fine being a bitch. Me too. (laughs) No, actually, I'm saying that kind of, no. I mean, sometimes I can be a bitch, but uh, actually I hate that word. Why do we have to even call, call it a being a bitch when you're just making business decisions and asserting yourself? Yeah. So I don't want to perpetuate that. Um, I call it being like a boss. Yeah. hashtag like a boss like a boss so uh yeah I get it though firing people is not it's my not it's not my favorite thing.
1: thing to do either but you know it has to be done and and ultimately once you push through the fear and whatever the crap is in your head and you you a decision you make it you make the decision and then you follow through on the decision ultimately you feel better like immediately like yeah, you do. and then uh, a week later you're like god I should have done that six months ago
0: yeah. So but I know you so I know that there were times when you sought help not in the form of hiring people but like coaching. Oh yeah. So tell us about that. When did you start to do that? So in 2000
1: right so 2012 I did like 88,000. Um and, and you I, had been in business 3 years? About two years, because it was years. the end of 2009. Yeah, no, like, yeah, about three years. 2010 was okay. 2011 was okay. I think in 2011, maybe I did like 110,000. And then in 2012, I did 88,000. And then in 2013, I think I was back up to about like 110, maybe 120. And then in 2014, I jumped to like 195.
0: Wow. And that What was, was that from? I have no idea. You don't know what you did. I have no idea.
1: I was just grinding. I was just grinding. And then I was like, I started to have this inclination in the beginning of 15. Like, yeah, so I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like, what what do I do? Like, how do I do this? I was so clueless because I don't naturally have a business mind. I'm just a divorce lawyer. And then... I got invited to a workshop that was given by How to Manage a Small Law Firm, the they the only coach solo and small firms as you know. And I was like, "Oh, wow. This is like a whole different ball game." And then I joined How to Manage a Small Law Firm in July of 15. And then that has been really good so for me. Almost I've learned five so years. much. Almost 5 years, yeah
0: would you say that when you started with them that you there was a tremendous learning curve
1: huge like anything else yeah
0: did you feel like oh my god i've been doing everything wrong how did yes. you feel when you were looking back after I felt what really they taught stupid. you? I felt really stupid. You were like, "Damn, I've been wasting I was so like, much Damn, time. I am
1: so dumb." Like I had no clue about like profit margins and revenue and and I had no concept of the firm making money when I wasn't there.
0: Yeah. Like like passive income, not just a job. Yeah. and I think that's hard for people sometimes to grasp. So for people that are hearing this now for the first time and, you know, trying to wrap their brain around it, your firm isn't a job. It shouldn't just be like, I have to get up in the morning and I have to go there and I have to do everything and I have to stay late and it can't function without me. So that's really the difference. That's a job you can do that anywhere that's providing yourself with a
1: job which is what i did the first five years of my practice i just was providing myself with a job really just out of necessity
0: so what was what would you say looking back were some of the biggest things that you did to change it to to make it not a job but to really turn it into a business
1: well definitely you know doing a budget (laughs) What's that? I know, right? Doing a budget, doing a business plan, having a coach who was holding me accountable and kind of guiding me because it can be so overwhelming. Once the light gets flicked on, you're like, oh my God, there's a thousand things to do. I'm never going to be able to do all this. And then it's kind of like, paralysis because for me, cause I'm like, I don't have time to do all this. Like I can't do all this, you know, and then you start again with the stories in your head. So, um, but really looking at it as a business, understanding the numbers, knowing why you have to know your numbers, understanding how much to pay somebody and having that based on math, um and then the other the other biggest thing for me was mindset. I did I've done a lot of mindset work of like you know, we all have insecurities, we all have got baggage from our childhoods or whatever our crap is. Everybody's got crap. Yeah. But the the issue is that crap, the crap can really interfere with your professional growth. So I had to do a lot of kind of unpacking of the baggage as part of this journey of the growth of my business. Um
0: Can you share and you don't have to, but can you share anything like any aspect of the mindset that was kind of showing itself in your business and holding you back? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I think that for
1: most of my life, I really kind of felt not good enough. You know, I really felt like I wasn't good enough. I wasn't worth it. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't I just wasn't good enough. And then I just really didn't deserve the success. I also think it was part of it was having grown up in a house where money was so tight, um, you know, opening the fridge and there's no food kind of tight that that really kind of does something to your mindset on what you can achieve as an adult, because you kind of carry that crap with you of like, oh, well, no, I mean, I should just be happy because my fridge is full now. Yeah, Like it's enough. Like that's enough. And if I, if I want more than that, if I want an extra fridge in the basement for my overflow food, then I'm asking for too much. And if I ask for too much, then it's all going to go away. Yeah. You know, because I don't, because ultimately I didn't think that I deserved it.
0: Yeah. So how would that show up in your, in what you would do? Like I'll give an example and you just let me know if, if it was here. Cause this is a big one for people not setting their prices high enough, yes. you know, their fees, yep. compromising too much on their yep. fees, making yep. their retainers too low, yep. all you of know, that. Not making people pay <sighs> all their bill on time, all of that. So you had all being that being
1: like, "Oh, I feel really bad they can't afford me" rather than realizing like, "Listen, they need to pay me first because I am the one that's doing working my ass off to make sure that their next chapter is good and fighting for them." Um, but I did all that. My, my, my hourly rate was too low for what I was, for the value that I was giving and for the quality of work that I was putting out. My retainers were too low. I was letting people slide too much on their retainers not being replenished. Um, I was doing all of that, which is all just like kind of self-sabotage stuff that was really about my mindset. And it was really holding me back. And once I kind of cleared all that crap out through doing workshops, I did a lot of workshops um, through how to manage a small law firm, as well as with David Nagel, as you know. Um, I love David. I I, I think I mention him on every show. He's really amazing. He's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, And now I'm finally feel a level of clarity that I've never felt before, where I can really focus on the business and not letting all my crap get in the way. Cause I've really kind of thrown away a lot of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're ever totally cured of that, but I think you get better at recognizing when, when it's showing itself correct? and just observing it. Okay. I saw that. We're going to just, I'm gonna we're just going to ignore that. that we're yep. going to move past it and keep going. Yeah. So what plans do you have for your business now? I mean, what is your, what is your goal? What is your pie in the sky? My vision goal is to take a step
1: back from practicing. I'm shocked that I really like running the business side of the law practice. I'm completely shocked because I've always loved being a divorce lawyer. I still love being a divorce lawyer. I don't think that I will ever not practice, but I would like to be able to take a step back. I want that option to step back and only me personally work on the cases that I really want to. I also have a mediation practice, which is, you know, is a natural extension of being a divorce lawyer. I do a lot of mediation. So my vision is really to do primarily mediation and only a handful of the litigation cases because I recognize that I still love me a good fight in the courtroom. So I don't think I'll ever give that up because I I just... I still really love a good fight that's worth having and just duking it out in the courtroom. It's fun. It still totally gets me going.
0: Well, I've heard you get pretty sassy in mediation too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, people just need to be told the reality of their situation. Well, I think that's what I really love about you is you don't mince words. I mean, you just tell it like it is. It's not, always pretty yeah.
1: <laughs> diplomacy is not and my strong it's suit
0: probably not for everybody no i am
1: definitely not everybody's cup of tea and i'm completely fine with that i mean
0: if you're super sensitive
1: yeah don't come to me
0: yeah that's probably not a good because it's
1: like a tough love
0: But I think people need to hear that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't really have a filter. I
1: don't have the skill of diplomacy. I really don't. When I've tried to be diplomatic, I fail miserably. So I'm just much more comfortable just being myself and either people can deal with it or they can. not I really don't give a shit either way.
0: Now it's interesting because it has to be how your management style for your business too. Yeah. And it's, is it the same thing? Like there's just going to be certain people that can't work here if they're yes, too sensitive 100
1: 100 because you know I think one of the good and bad things about me is that you always know exactly where you stand with me for better or for worse
0: yeah I I can think of some things I'm not gonna talk about them I'm not ready for that but there there are some things you've said to me where I was like what and, and I consider myself you know pretty thick-skinned but you just totally caught me off guard <laughs> but I love you. We're besties now. I love you too. um So I, I would say that um for me, and I don't think I'm as saucy as you. I I have a hard time sometimes with the people management because I don't like having to do what all the you know business books tell you to do is sort of massage people and you be to super coach nice them. and all that and. I don't know, like you can't it's like I almost feel like you can't just tell them like, look, you you fucked up and you need to go fix that. You know, there's some other delicate way that you're supposed to say it. And I have a real problem with that. And sometimes it doesn't go over so well (laughs) with employees. It's something I'm working on. But what's your philosophy on that? Do you just tell? Or do you no, just tell just, it like it is? Yes,
1: one hundred percent. I don't. I don't really have the ability to do it any other way. I really yeah. don't. You know, it's funny. We were just recently on vacation, and I was hanging out with my fifteen-year-old, and he said to me, "He goes, you know, mom, I'm really aware that you make a lot of people uncomfortable." Really? And I started laughing, and I was like, "Yeah, I do. I'm okay with it." And he's like, "He goes, do you think it would be helpful?" if maybe you had more of a filter and I started laughing and I was like, no, I really don't. I said, listen, I I just am who I am. People either can deal with me or they can't like, that's really their issue. I can't. I said, and then I was like explaining to him. I'm like, listen, dude, you can like walk around and live your life trying to please other people and adjust what you say and how you say it. I say, I'm not saying don't be considerate of people. I said, but you know, you just, or you can just be yourself and either people can deal with you or not. It's not my problem.
0: Yeah. I, that's my motto in 2020. Just be you. It's, you know, I feel like maybe that's expression is a little overdone, but it's so true. And how many people out there actually are doing that? Just being themselves.
1: It's hard. Again, all the crap that people get in their heads. But with my staff, I, I really do make a point to not yell at anybody. Yeah. I'm not a You're yeller. You're not mean. No, I'm not a yeller, and I'm not mean. But I'm very direct, and I understand that that can make people uncomfortable. But again, that's not my problem. Um, yeah. But it's like, listen, here's the deal. This is what you did wrong. This is how we're gonna fix it. But ultimately, the, I feel like the buck stops with me, right? Yeah, it does. It does. Like if they've done something wrong, then I haven't trained them appropriately or I haven't done whatever I need to do. Because ultimately, if, if somebody in my office makes a mistake, it it's on me. It's my business.
0: So how do you know when it's time to let someone go?
1: Oh, God, you, you know right away. And, and <clears throat> you know right away.
0: Really? Yes. I feel like sometimes I don't. Well, I I'm don't. getting better at it. I'm getting it better don't. at recognizing when it's not a good fit. So,
1: you know, you may see something like two months in, and then you'll, and that voice in the back of your head, you're like, mm, that's not okay. But then the other part of you is like, well, it'll be okay. You rationalize it. You know, she was having a bad day. She has a lot going on personally. <laughs> so, which is
0: just a story.
1: Which is a story that we make up because it th- I just don't feel like, firing her and looking for her replacement. So I really wanted oh, yeah. to work so bad because again, We're I are hurting
0: her feelings uh, and oh, all that.
1: Cause again, I've hired out of desperation.
0: Yeah. You know, this is in
1: my earlier days when I was first hiring people. Now I really take my time who I'm going to hire and I will not hire them if they're not going to be a good fit. Cause it's just a waste of time and money and it sets me back.
0: It is. I- I've learned that the hard way with people is finding them and then getting them on board because they don't they're not profitable immediately you have to no, train them they have correct. to figure out how you like things done and if you wait too long to fire them you just wasted all that money and now you're back at square one yeah because the whole time that they were there was kind of like a shit a waste. show yeah and then you waste. then
1: they leave and then you find mistakes and it's you know it's a big shit show
0: yeah yeah well so
1: it's better to avoid the shit show
0: we won't say any names um <laughs> uh, <laughs> So what would you say at this point in your, in your development, (laughs) what are the challenges that are on the, on the radar for you right now? Like as you're growing and you know where you are now? Right
1: now I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm finally in like a really good place. Because is I everything
0: s- just going swimmingly?
1: Well, no, of course not. Not every day. But everything feels manageable. We've got, you know, policies and procedures in place and systems in place and the workflow flows rather than, like, you know, when something falls off the calendar or doesn't get put on the calendar and, you know, that kind of stuff. So we've got processes and procedures for every single thing. You know, when the order comes in, this is what you do. When the, this comes in, this is what you do. So it just runs like a machine now that's good that's it's not, not supposed like to it's be. not like a well-oiled machine as much as i i th- that's still my goal is to be like we were just in disney and i'm like D- all i could notice was how every aspect of disney runs like a well-oiled machine
0: i noticed that too when i went i it was fascinating From, from like the parking people steering the parking
1: lot to the ticket sellers to the helpers to the restaurant to the rides like every single aspect of that place soup to nuts just runs it's and i true. was like and so i'm walking around noticing all these things and i'm going oh, i want my business to run like this i know
0: i i that struck me too when i went there and i went to universal and i saw that and i think what i really noticed is that everybody has a very specific, specific. role yep and they know it they know it and they do it and they do it well and i think in my own business there are still times when we'll be like, oh, let, you know, that's a marketing function, but let's ask the paralegal to do it, or you know, this is something really an office manager should do, but I'm, I'm just gonna ask the attorney to do it, and you know, you look at it like, why, why are we doing that? Do you know? Well, I mean, I
1: think you know, especially as people are growing their businesses, everybody's wearing multiple hats. Yeah. At first, you know, until you grow enough. And that's where I kind of feel like I am right now is like, I feel like I finally have a team in place where things can start to run more smoothly and more like a well-oiled machine. I mean, I was just on vacation for a couple of days and yes, I checked my email and yes, I was responding to text messages from my staff, but I was pretty stress-free
0: yeah. I was going to ask you if you can actually go away now. I actually go in. away now. And
1: I really do. I don't call into the office every day. I do check my email and my texts, but not, I'm not sitting there for hours. I'm oh like, I don't even bring my laptop. And you're not worried. You're not worried. I'm like not what worried. the hell is going on? In I'm office. not worried at all, which is really so different and so nice
0: yeah and and you would attribute that to having the right team in place having
1: the right team in place and having all the policies and procedures written down which are so tedious and such a pain in the ass um written down so everybody knows what to do so they're not walking in my office 20 times a day like what do i do at this and i'm like oh my god look at the procedure
0: 500 times already i know all that shit's written down now (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i think that that was a real um that changed things in our office too. And I always thought policies and procedures had to be this big, fancy employment manual. And somebody said, you know, it's not, it's every time you explain to someone how to do something or what you want them to do, that's a policy and procedure. Just write it down. Yep. Uh, Cause you're not going to remember. No. So I like to end each interview with, a series of questions. I was going to send them to you in advance, but sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Um, okay. So, and some of these you, you might've sort of touched on. What would you say is the very best business advice that you've ever gotten?
1: To give away my calendar. Really? That was my first major shift of letting go of the control.
0: Yeah, because that can get really tedious.
1: Because even though I had had Alexis for a year, I was still managing my own calendar. I was still because I didn't want to give it away because if I wasn't doing it, it wasn't going to get done right because I'm so fabulous.
0: Yes. You know,
1: ego. So that's a big thing. I remember the coach at How to Manage saying, give it away right now. And I came back and I gave it away. And that was like the big the first big shift I had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have to change your thinking
1: totally. But you you gotta can't, just, it can't
0: just be in your head. You have to do, do yeah. it. You too, have to delegate,
1: right? delegate think, it down.
0: Doesn't David always say you have to act your way into a new way of thinking. It's totally true. He says that. So what's the best life advice you ever got?
1: I have no idea. All
0: right. So I should that's really these specific. Out in advance.
1: That's like really specific. <laughs> Um, I think just cutting the crap out of your head and realizing, I think that the, the, my takeaway from all the work I've done with workshops and with David Nagel was all the crap that I went through in my childhood that made me feel unworthy as an adult is completely irrelevant to how successful I can be.
0: That's amazing because there are people that never are able to do that. They, they bring that to their deathbed yeah it's it affects really, everything it's hard. they do,
1: but yeah it's completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant to how successful anybody can be.
0: That's awesome. So what person do you most admire, and why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> fuck
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right so you're telling me i should give these questions in advance i'm like oh my god this is like a really deep like thoughtful question i have no idea i mean
0: i was i was i'm testing this out because my last guess i gave them to her in advance and then i was like maybe i shouldn't do that maybe it should just be on the fly
1: well i mean you know i was talking about part in my um, somebody i know or somebody i don't know
0: Anybody. I mean, there's no person that you idolize. Like what what about when you were a kid? Did you have an idol? I did. It was Madonna.
1: Kind of still love is. Madonna.
0: Um after Super Bowl, it's J Lo. I mean, I
1: have a <laughs> I have a lot of admiration and respect for my mother for everything that she's done and what she was able to do with such limited resources. I mean, she had me when she was twenty. Um, she was married at nineteen, divorced at twenty. Um celebrity wise, I would say Oprah. Yeah.
0: Oprah. Just because
1: if you look at her childhood, it's completely irrelevant to her level of success, meaning that it didn't limit her in any way. And, and instead she took the experiences as a child and kind of, bolstered them into being part of her success and the life that she has created for herself, aside from all the millions of people that she's helped, just that what she's done for herself. I mean, the amount of work that woman has had to have done on herself in order to be
0: where she is,
1: it's pretty badass.
0: Yeah. She, I love her. She is one of my idols. Um, so what are the biggest rewards that you experience as an entrepreneur?
1: Flexibility is number one. Yeah, My kid is sick. Um, There's a play at school, parent-teacher conferences. There's a soccer game. Like the flexibility that I can leave the office and go do that and come
0: back. You own your schedule.
1: I own my schedule. I'm in charge of my schedule. Um, Just the inherent flexibility, which was really one of the big reasons I started my own firm, because at that point I had two kids. I knew we were going to have another one. Um, if I was able to get knocked up, which I was, and, um,
0: are you done? Is the kitchen closed?
1: <laughs> Dude, I'm fitty. <laughs> it's
0: okay. I'm fitty. Janet Jackson Shod had one of them. Yeah. Well, I'm,
1: I got, I get tied up after my third, <laughs> when I was 42 and I had my third child. Um, but the flex, the, the inherent flexibility is really what's so key. And the fact that I'm an entrepreneur, there's no ceiling on my income. Yeah. There's no ceiling. Yeah. It's yeah. not like I'm not working for a corporation where I'm going to get a five percent raise every year, and then top out at whatever, and it's there's, there's no
0: ceiling. It's all about you. It's yeah. what you put into it. Correct. What would you tell your twenty year old self?
1: Oh, good lord, go to therapy like right now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get into therapy till I was twenty seven. don't I would have been like, go to therapy right now.
0: <laughs> Did you find therapy has helped you or coaching? Like, which one would you say? Well, It was totally different
1: at times in my life. Yeah. I mean, when I went to therapy, when I was 27, it was really, I was kind of at a crossroads where either I was going to go down the road of being complete and utter train wreck, or I was going to go get a graduate school education and kind of make the most of myself. And so therapy is really what enabled me to choose the road of education and starting to get my shit together. It really saved me in a lot of ways. And then I thought I had dealt with all my crap. And then when I started the coaching program, it all just like came right to a surface, but it was like, a, it was a different level, right? Chris and David yeah. used to say new level, new devil.
0: Yeah, it's true. Cause you're not the same person that not you were. Not the same person that I was. Yeah. Even... Even five years ago, really. Correct. Totally different. Well, maybe we can talk about all that stuff another day. Okay, final question. Yes. What would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own law firm but they're too afraid? Oh my god. Push through the fear. Ignore the fear.
1: Ignore the fear.
0: Yeah. One hundred percent. Just
1: ignore the fear. Push through it. Push through it.
0: David always says that people ask him, how do I get the fear to go away? And he says, you can't, don't. it's not going to go you don't. away. It doesn't you just go it.
1: away. I remember when I started when I went out on my own, I knew like, you know, three lawyers locally. And I was, I saw Pat Durning in the courtroom and he was like, oh, you just started your own firm. I said, yeah, I got laid off. I opened my own firm. And I said to him, I said, when am I, I, I going to stop being so afraid? And he looked at me, he goes, never. And he had been on his own for 20 some years. He goes, never. But it does get a lot better about eight years in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks. Eight <laughs> I'm gonna years. go cry over my well, cornflakes. That was, that was his was experience. On, but it was honest. Yeah.
1: He was like, it never goes away. Because I was looking at him as, oh, he's been on his own for 20 years. He's old and wise. And he's, <laughs>
0: he has all the answers. And then he was like, yeah, it never goes away. No, it doesn't. When you when you're generating your own income, mm-hmm. when things are great, you're like flying high. But then, if the phone slows down, you start thinking this is the beginning of the end. Well, <laughs> and it, it's stressful because I'm like I've got all these people that I need to pay.
1: That their livelihood yeah. depends upon me bringing in business. It's a lot of responsibility. Most days I'm totally fine with it, and other days it kind of creeps up on me, and I'm like,
0: I don't know, if I can do this. <laughs>
1: But then I ignore it.
0: Yeah, I think that um, somebody who who has a traditional nine to five job had said something that really struck me. And she I was sort of eavesdropping on her conversation. And she was like, oh, entrepreneurs, like they, that's just a whole different animal. You know, they just think differently. I, I you know that's not me. And I have to say, I felt a little good when I heard her say that because I was like, it's kind of true. It's not for everybody.
1: It's not for everybody. But if you have the inkling, you should do it. Push through the fear. Just push through it.
0: I don't know anybody who went out on their own and regretted it. I I don't know anybody. I could never work for anybody again. And people told me when I went on on my own, they said, you're going to wonder why you didn't do it sooner. Yeah. And... And it worked out. And here you are, so here
1: successful badass woman.
0: We're both badass women. Thank you for doing this My and pleasure. sharing your secrets with everybody. Uh, thank
1: you. No, thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Wake Up Call.